Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome, everybody, to episode 40 of the Inferno Suns podcast. I'm Dana Scott with special co-host Cedric Sabalas, the NBA one-time All-Star and Suns legend, as well as Dr. Patrick Batillo. He is Suns super fan, Mr. Orange, and you better call him a doctor because he does have a PhD. And we have special guests the one and only James D-Train Williams, R&B legend from Brooklyn from the 80s through now. And it's an honor to have you on the show, my man, really. Oh, thank you. It's so good to be here, man. Yeah. Glad I can make it. Yeah, growing up on your music in the early 80s. Yeah, you could hear him. <laughs> coming right, man. You're supposed to come in right. Yes, know? sir. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, said also is an R&B radio show host on Mix. 104.3, correct? Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah, in Phoenix. So, you know, this is wow. for him, too. And growing up in the tri-state area myself, growing up on your music, D-Train, it was an, it's an honor to have you on the show with singles such as Keep On, You're the One for Me, and to see you at Rob Parker's 60th birthday party on Saturday. Um, I normally don't get starstruck, but I, I was my eyes lit up seeing you singing <laughs> to Rob and you know, for everyone kind of gravitated towards Stephen A. Smith when he came in the room. But for me, it was gravitating towards you because of what your music meant to be uh, in my life as a young boy in the 80s in uh, New York City and the Tri-State oh, Thank you, man. So for real. So you two things I just wanted to ask about real quick. You were mm -hmm. a defensive tackle uh, for Erasmus High School in Brooklyn, right? Yeah, on Church Avenue, uh, I played football for Erasmus from uh, from 1977 through 1979. We won the championship in 1978, beating Andrew Jackson High School out there in Queens. And um, I got the name D-Trained by being the defensive tackle. And it was real hard. And never made the all-star team, but I did my job. <laughs> yeah. And so also you were um... – you, you did you go to school with Will Downing, the R&B? Uh, oh God, yeah. See, Erasmus was a school of great alumni. You had Gabe Kaplan from Welcome Back, Cotter, yeah. who graduated. Barbara Streisand graduated from Erasmus. Um, Barry Eastman, the producer, came from Erasmus. Um, what's his name? From uh, he's on the Matrix movies. Uh, Charles. Uh, oh God, I can't think of his last name. He graduated from Erasmus, but Will went to school with me, Hubert Eves IV. Uh, my partner, Hubert Eves III, his son graduated after me with Will. And uh, Erasmus was a school of the arts for music, art, dance, and it was a great place to be in Brooklyn. I mean, for me, it was my saving grace because I got tired of running and getting chased by the white cats out there by Madison High School. I, I mean, I would have went to high school out there, but they they could be your friends in school, but the racism was so prevalent out there that at three o'clock, same dude that was in your classroom shaking your hand was throwing rocks at you, chasing you to the base with a baseball back to the train station. Wow. So it was really like that old school 80s movie, three o'clock high. 
Oh, yeah. It was like, it was, the neighborhood was mob deep. I mean, it was like Italian mob deep. So <laughs> you, yeah. you, had to, you had to contend with that. You know, a lot of kids in the city had to run from gangs. We had to run from mob, the sons of mobsters, man. Wow. So that's like uh, with Chesapeake Bay, kind of like a lot of times, out of out there, kind of. In oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, in Brooklyn, it was really segregated because in Bed-Stuy, Brownsville, Crown Heights, that's where most of the black people live. Yeah. But then when you go to Sheepshead Bay. Sheepshead Bay, sorry. I meant to... Chesapeake Bay's in Virginia, sorry. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sheepshead Bay out there um, near Coney Island uh, was largely Italian. And now it's largely Croatian and, uh, you know, Russian. But back then, it was all Italian. Even when we did our albums, uh, recording our albums from 1982 through 1988, you know, there were times when we couldn't go outside after dark, like, because the neighborhood we were in, you know, was mob deep. So if we ordered food, we had to order the food into the studio, and we had to watch out when we left at 10 o'clock, you know? Yeah, and also... Patrick is also an original native from Queens, right? So, and also okay. was said being a Yankees fan. And, uh, you know, you see what the, the hat on, of course. So I grew up as a Yankees fan myself. So did you grow up playing other sports at all? Or were you just into football? No, I sucked at baseball and I really sucked at basketball, Cedric. <laughs> so I, I'm just putting it out there. I tried. But it would not. I couldn't. I couldn't hit a ball if it came to me at two miles an hour. That's the real. But <laughs> but um, I love other sports. You know, uh, one thing I grew up playing handball in Brooklyn. The big thing, and for people that are old enough to know, we, we had a games called handball, and then we had skelly. Skelly is when you put the bottle caps on the ground and shoot them into the squares. Those were the two things we we played in Brooklyn. We didn't have basketball rims and nets and all that stuff in our parks we had those metal garbage cans that the garbage man put out and you put one at the end of the block and you put the other one at the other end and y'all just go for it up and down the block you know yeah. that's what we had to play with so it was interesting man it, it was great growing up in brooklyn because everybody in the neighborhood knew each other and it's a collective it's a collective group that raises a child you know I grew up in the church over there with Al Sharpton, who was my junior church minister, Ronnie Dyson, who had the song, If You Let Me Make Love To You, Then Why Can't I Touch You? He was my choir director. Wow. So I grew up with all these greats in my church, Bishop F.D. Washington, who was the Prince of Preachers in Brooklyn, um, all of these things that I grew up around. And so I had to ask permission to leave. You know, I was like, Pops, I'm going out in the world. <laughs> <laughs> It's like being in lost in space. Dr. Smith, are you going outside? Yeah, I'm going outside. Yeah, was... <laughs> and and he gave me a permission, and he said, son, long as you put God first, God will make you second. And and I've always had a line that I wouldn't cross in this business. And um, even when people did me wrong, um, I didn't seek revenge. You know, you just let it be because whatever's going to happen is going to happen. It might be did because I did bad business or because they did bad business or people are shady. You know, life absolutely happens. Um, but the great thing about it, you get to live it every day because a lot of people didn't wake up this morning. <laughs> a lot of people didn't make it into 2024. And what I've learned about my life is that yesterday ended last night. Yeah. 
So whoever I need to say sorry to today, forgive me, I love you, any of the above narratives, I can say it. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, I want so to ask you, James, because yeah, my transition was a little different. I started out DJing when I was 12, and I wanted to be in the radio so bad. I went to school for <laughs> radio and television communications. And then uh -huh. just happened to fall in, and I just kind of went with it. You was kind of other way, being on the gridiron. Right. How did, right. did the music come in to, to make you go, okay, this is something that I can really do for, for a lifetime? Sure. Um, I had three choices. I used to paint crests. I was really good at painting in my school. So I used to paint crests for rich businessmen in, uh, in the Hamptons and get $25 a painting. And my mother would feed me coffee all night long so I could get that $25, you know what I mean? <laughs> and... Um, and then I had I had art, and then I had music, and I had uh, football. Well, in football, when I was ready to graduate, there was only two, three colleges that wanted me, and I didn't know the importance of it because I was not a, a grade-A student, <laughs> you know, like 70 average. Um, I could have went to Albany State. I did go up to Albany State to watch them work out, um, but the dudes were shooting up steroids in the in – the, locker room and I said okay I'm out and then same thing I was North Carolina A&T my cousin was a, a a drummer for the Aggies he was in the drum corps up there my mother didn't want me going with him she said you're gonna be partying too much you ain't going to school and the last one was Texas A&M whereas you know you got to be almost a superstar to get into them southern schools like Texas and all of that so I chose music and I'd rather say music chose me because it's been prevalent in my life since I was six years old. Um, I grew up singing in the church. And the easiest transition for me after working in Manhattan and all of those places was singing. Uh, I started out singing with Reverend Timothy Wright in the concert choir. I had my first record at 15 years old called Victories in the Praise. And then I won a, a contest when I was in Brooklyn College. Um, singing Stevie Wonder's, uh, I forgot what song it was, it was one of Stevie's songs. Oh, All Is Fair, All Is Fair in Love. And I beat out the Five Beta Sigma Brothers. And that's when I, I said, wow, I might want to do this. And so Will Downing called me up one day and he was still in Erasmus and I was in Brooklyn College my first year. And he said, yo man, I'm writing this song. I'm going in the studio out of Sheepshead Bay. Would you come out there and sing backgrounds? And I went out there, said, and I, sang backgrounds behind him. And this dude walked in the studio. Light-skinned brother sat down with some Chinese food. And he was like, he looked real cool because he was dressed real slick, like the Huxtables, you know, back in the early 80s. <laughs> so I was like, well, who's this cat? So um, Will said, yo, D, that's Hubert Eves, man, from him to me. Yo, he wrote for Roberta Flack, Donnie Hathaway. He's on Norman Connors, You Are My Starship. Yo, you got to impress this dude. So I was singing backgrounds and he asked me to do some step out leads. So I did some step out leads and he said, come on, bring it up, bring it up. So I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. And when I did that, Hubert put down the Chinese food. <laughs> he put down the Chinese food. He's like, oh, wait a minute, hold on. <laughs> so he gave me his number and I got together with him the next day at his house. And when I got to his house, he had this track up on a two track uh, tape machine. And, he, and it was playing. He said, all I got is this. I'll stand up. 
on the cloud and shout out loud. That's all I got, man. I'll stand up on the cloud and shout out loud. So I said, okay, give me a pad. Give me a pad. And I started writing, man. I was like, with this to love my time. Takes my feet up off the ground to fly away. And we wrote that song in about an hour. And the rest is pretty much history. We got to deal with Prelude Records up on 57th Street with Marvin Schlachter because nobody else believed in us at that time. We had CBS Records who said that I couldn't sing and said, get a girl. You had Warner Brothers who said, ah, he sounds kind of old, it's too loud. Get a smoother sounding singer. You know, what happens is everybody in record companies want to feel like they're geniuses until they're wrong. You know, everybody's like, I got the light to lead you out of the darkness. And then when they find out that it's somebody else, then they're like, I knew that all along. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I knew he was going to make it. Yeah. I mean, because there was a lot of people, just like in football, said uh, there was so much against us being from Brooklyn, being from Erasmus. Erasmus had not won a championship in 43 years. They called us the cardiac kids in the daily newspaper. And we got our championship rings and bracelets and everything from Bobby Hammond, who was the running back for the New York Giants. We went to the mayor's office. He gave them to us. Some of the guys still got their medallions. I gave mine to my mother and never looked back. <laughs> wow. But that was an easy transition. And that's how I made it into the music industry, man. And it's been a wonderful journey because I got to meet so many great people. I learned from a lot of people. You know, Billy Eckstein was one of my early mentors. Um, my father always played Nat King Cole around the house. The other thing was, you know, Al Green. See, there's guys I got a lot of respect for, even today, looking back on their videos. Like, I look at Al Green, and you can see it on, on YouTube. Al Green singing on Soul Train with a broken arm. He got into a car accident. His arm was in a sling, and the front part of his arm was in a cast. And he was dancing his butt off on Soul Train singing. My second image of greatness, Prince, singing in the rain at the Super Bowl wireless not worried about getting electrocuted or anything he did in fact his performance to me was better than michael jackson's yeah wow i mean said you got something else to contribute patrick because i, I definitely want to just say that you and will downing uh were definitely the altos that i grew up on besides anita baker so um oh yeah well will's yeah. my dude i mean will was captain of the bowling team now, if you can get any more boring than that, <laughs> you ain't gonna yeah. get no girls. What yeah, do you well, do, man? His, I bowl. <laughs> yeah, well, his his dream fulfilled album was definitely something my father always played around the house and in the car. So you know that was. Oh yeah, well, Will was the first after I came out. My records hit big in Europe. I wound up doing Soul Train four times, Top of the Pops in London four times, because my record went to number one in Europe twice, three years apart. And went to one, number one back in 1982. And then Paul Hardcastle re-recorded it, remixed it, and put it back out again in like 1985. And when he did it, it went back up the charts in Europe. But at that time, European charts and American charts were different charts. Because what happens is that was when America, we segregate our, our charts between black, white. See, M2 may broke it down for me, and I can break it down for you. You take a circle and you draw the circle, and then you split the circle in half. One half of that circle on the top is rock and pop music, period. Ain't nothing else up there. On the bottom of that pie, 
You got to split a slice over for jazz, another slice for country, another slice for contemporary jazz, another slice for R&B, you know, a, another slice for world music, Mexican music, Latin music. You cut it up, that pie gets real small on the second quarter of that pie. That's why a person like D-Train, they'd have to fuss and fight over a $175,000 budget for an album, whereas Adam Ant could walk in the door with no proven record and get a $2 million contract. That's the difference between pop and R&P. So M2 may broke it down for me like that. And I was like, wow, man. And he was always my big brother, my wisdom, and my teacher in this business. You know, he wound up being the musical director for New York Undercover as well as being a producer for Roberta Flack and Donny Hathaway's hits. Um, and, you know, and then he came out with his own group with Tawatha and they had Juicy Fruit, you know? So, I mean, and he's always been a, he was always a constant in my life, even when he got the cancer and, you know, I'd go see him and stuff like that and we'd talk about it and, you know, dealing with our different issues. He, he not only taught me how to be a great entertainer, but how to be a man in this business. I had great teachers um, you know, like the Bar K's, James Alexander. He's the one that made me roadworthy. You know, when we'd be out there on the road, I didn't drink when I was in my 20s. So he'd say, D-Train, if you meet a girl, I know you don't drink, but to get back to the hotel, make sure you always take a card from the front desk. <laughs> in case they put something in your food and you can't make it back home, you know where you at. So I was like, okay. And and so James Alexander from the Barcades made me roadworthy, and him and him too made were my big brothers in the business. Wow. You yeah. got well said. Real quick, I mean, being that you know the army connection, Patrick. Because I know I wanted to mention about the connection of Matume, whereas the the juicy fruit sample for Biggie is juicy, his big first big hit, which was a bad yeah. record. Yeah. And I think you might know where I'm going with this, James, where the the thing about Bad Boy, of course, they sampled Keep On, Sky's the Limit, which is one of Biggie's biggest records. And, right. And right. we discussed that at, the, you know, at Rob's party where you didn't really get your just due for the getting that record sampled from you. Well, yeah, you know what happens in this business. You know, we had signed over the administration rights to a company called Unidisc in Canada. So, you know, legally, we're still in the process of finding out what Puff might have paid for sampling rights or for administration fees to a guy named George Cucuzella in Canada. Um, the lawyers are all working that stuff out. I don't fight over money because I believe that the money will come. And I believe that justice always wins in the end. In fact, when you look at what Puff is going through now in social media, and now he wants to give back money that he never gave people, that's like Barry Gordy paying everybody on Motown. The Funk Brothers died broke. Wow. If you ever watch the movie Standing in the Shadows of Motown, you see all of them on, the, on a bridge in Detroit with canes. They look homeless. And they played on everything from the Jackson 5 to Martha Reeves, the Vandellas, Smokey Robinson, and the Miracles. And what he did was he put them on salary and bought them cars and paid their rent. And that's all they got. Because when the session was over, their money was over. But when you hand a black man a Cadillac back in those times, he felt like he was significant. But he didn't know that somewhere down the road, somebody else is collecting 
three and four million dollars off the song that he just played on over and over and over and over. Everybody that was on Motown wound up suing Barry. Stevie wound up suing Barry for yeah. 70 million. His best friend, Smokey Robinson, his best friend, wound up getting his own son to do it. Terry Gordon. So, you know, what happens is life, justice always wins in the end. And what God has for you, man, can't nobody take it from you. They might, you know, it's like justice delayed is not justice denied. You know what I mean? Just because it ain't happening today don't mean it ain't going to happen tomorrow. Yeah. And all you got to do is be receptive, be in a place of waiting and understanding and prayer. And it'll come to you. Why? Because you, you don't have to go looking for it. It's already looking for you. It's already yours. All you got to do is reach out your hand and claim it. Like most things in life, you know, we we look at situations, we look at life and we say, okay, this is happening. That person died. And, you know, the older I get, the more people die because I'm 62. So many of my friends died, started dying at 19 in Brooklyn, either getting shot, killed, going to jail or whatever. And you say, well, man, I'm still here. And what is the significance of or relevance of you being in this place? That means that God got a plan for you, man. That means that there's something for you to do. And so I will say to all three of you, like I've been saying to everybody else, this year, my motto is three words. Go be great. That's all I got. Yeah. Go be great. Whatever you're going to do, go be great. Yeah. The irony of this is that before we segue into the sun stuff is the, the free frame on your hit, keep on, and Biggie Sky's the Limit, that 112 saying was the sky's the limit. If you know, you just keep on, got to keep on pressing on. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so, I mean, it just pretty much encompasses everything you just said. Uh, well, you know, one expressed the narrative of the streets yeah. and the hustle and what it's like to be standing in the cold in the doorways of Brooklyn selling weed you know living that life the other one was an expression of inspiration the first one with me and Hubert made when I was working up at a uh, Sirius XM radio I had guys writing me from prison calling in from prison saying listen man I'm doing a life bid I'm never getting out mm -hmm. I'm not going home to see my family and they're not coming to see me I'm going to die in here but your song, Keep On, gets me from day to day. That alone in and of itself says enough for any other music that I got to make after it from here on out. Because that legacy is cemented in the minds and in the hearts of those people that whose faces I'll never see and whose hearts I'll never see. But what I can do is be a living example because people will always forget what you say. Yeah. But they will never forget how you made them feel. And they will always be watching what you do. No, no doubt. Well, the Suns, uh, we'll just get to what they're at right now. There's mm -hmm. there's one seven out of the last ten. And mm -hmm. so what I wanted to ask said was with Bradley Beal and the big three being healthy, Booker, Bill, and Durant, do you see that this team is riding the ship? Or the fact that their fourth quarter woes, which we saw in the game last night uh, against Portland, where the fourth quarter they let 
them creep back in, the Blazers were really just kind of bringing it to the Suns and cutting that lead to five with about, you know, the halfway point left in the game. Do you see that the Suns still have a lot of kinks to work out? And we'll go to Patrick after set. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's um, it, it was the process of getting healthy for all three of them, uh, completely healthy with their with their uh, in unison together. And and it doesn't matter uh, what team you put against them. This three uh, are very dangerous when it comes to putting the ball in the basket and and making that transition. We've talked about this before. Uh, where where's our leadership going to come from? Uh, you know, Devin is very aggressive, but you know, uh, as well as Kevin, but they're not verbal. And, and Bill as well. They're not verbal leaders. Uh, so they have to figure out what space that they're going to live in throughout this team to try to help them move on. Frank has definitely put them in a good position and mentally, defensively-wise, but it's really up to them on the court. That The five that they put out there on the court to communicate and rotate and help each other out and, and, and trust one another. And I think that's just the biggest thing. Um, you know, I, before I've said, you know, that that's going to be how do you tame these two wild, these three wild animals together to try to to make a, a cohesive team. And it, one is time um, and they just need to be on the court together in time. And I think um, the other is going to be it's going to be an argument. Uh, it's going to be an argument. It happens with all the great teams. It's going to be an argument. And then we're going to then they're going to settle and see where they can trust each other. Will somebody have their back or will they go to battle? And uh, um, and it may be it may be a reason on the defensive end, and it might have happened a couple of games back when Devin, you know, he didn't have the mic on him, but the mic uh, caught him saying, well, "You're not gonna you're gonna turn the ball over, and you're not gonna get back on defense." You know, that was that was the start of their defense getting better. And, and Patrick, when you uh, you know put that leadership, and like I said, the offense will take care of itself. When you put that leadership on defense, uh, Patrick, you can always have people to rely on you, and you can always get back into a game defensively. Yeah, I said, you know, you hit on the head. It's just even last night with Portland, it's the defense is is the focus. So fourth quarters have been extremely rough. <clears throat> Doesn't matter, excuse me, if it was the big three, two, or one of them. Um, and then even with all three, like defensively, we have to be better. And we have to learn those rotations. And then, as you said, uh, we have to – someone has to step up and be that guy on the floor that's playing. And so, as as said, alluded to with Devin Booker, you know, getting irritated, uh, calling out his team, holding him accountable, rightfully so. That has to be the culture, regardless of who it is. So whether that's KD Booker himself, Beal, uh, it doesn't matter. That that should be the expectation. And you know, giving up as many points as they did last night to a Portland team that had eight guys, you know, eligible to play. That that's that's not acceptable. I don't think anybody uh, would feel comfortable with that, especially coming off the game against the Lakers, where offensively we saw what this group could be um, but then you, you still have to be able to play defense and and we can't just rely on three guys being able to score and we want to outscore the other team and that's not why Frank Vogel was brought in but um, the continued time game after game rep after rep practice after practice excuse me with them all healthy and then as uh, you know said stated they have to go through those kind of battles uh, on the floor and be able to navigate it and have disagreements and and then get through that and I think we'll continue to see that I think a lot of the media is focused on you know Suns aren't where they should have been you know they're going to be a bust all that you know we we know uh, watching the team it, it's going to take time and um, I think they're doing a great job of ignoring that noise and not letting it kind of impact the inner circle of the squad and and that's essential to make sure that come playoff time they're ready to go.
Yeah. Let me add to that. Yeah. Go ahead, this is an era of basketball. Like, you got to think, you know, you got guys that don't even get any minutes that are making more than Michael Jordan made in his, you know, heyday when he was really playing. So, you, you, the accountability is the real big factor, the motivator. How do you get everybody on the same page when, when, when the dollars are so, you know, really out there? You know, that's the wonderful thing about Tyron Lue. Um, you know, they always question the Clippers on what they, how would they do this, that, and other to manage those guys. I think even you could even count it to four um, for the money that they have earned and they have earned uh, respect in this league and and whether or not they win it or not. Uh, how do you get them to come around and play? And they have been doing that too with the Clippers. But I think the biggest thing here in Phoenix is is having having the uh, the ear to 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 be able to take in criticism to be able to take in a little bit of a judgment, uh, fire back and and know that it's for a good cause. It's not just because, you know, somebody's pointing you out or they're picking on you or you this way or that way. Uh, and that's what the maturity of a team goes. And, 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 and it starts, it started, like I said, again, it started with the health of all three. Once you get all three, then everybody can start figuring out what their roles are. Sure. Now, my next question is being that Bradley Beal said after last night's Blazers win, or I'm sorry, Suns went over the Blazers that the Suns took a step back defensively at first. And then, you know, it was great to win, but they're not where they were in the Lakers game on Thursday. So would a win over the Sacramento Kings be a step forward for the Suns, being that they did beat the Kings? I'm sorry, they did beat the Suns uh, twice in December. Well, the Kings are dangerous uh, because as much as, you know, this era, they haven't seen a great team. Uh, you know, you got to go back to the C-Web, Mike Bibby, you know, Lottie days to see a great King. So when you see the purple, gray, and white step into either your arena or you going into the airs, you don't really see that competition. So uh, sometimes you kind of take a lackadaisical effort, but now this team is really playing hard. This bonus is just balling Fox. Everybody is really contributing. I think Mike Brown has done an excellent job by bringing a championship attitude. It was just a matter of time. They had the youth. They just couldn't put it together. But I think sometimes you take take things off and you take it for granted. Seven out of ten will get you relaxed. Like, okay, we're in our groove. Now this is where we're supposed to be. This is our thing. But you don't understand what got you there. Not only the health, but the fact that you guys were in a panic mode. Like this is not, this ship is not sailing like it's supposed to. So we got to tighten up the screws. But once you tighten up the screws, you know, it vibrates a little and they start to loosen a little bit. So with a record like 7 to 10, I think that's what, what was going on. Bradley was really pinpointing that. Our defense needs to stay on the grind. Offensively-wise, we talked about it. They don't have to do anything, Patrick. They, they can score buckets uh, with the best of them. But if they don't get on each other, stay on each other, about the defensive side, it's just going to be, you know, maybe maybe the first round making a, making a great appearance or sometimes – uh, especially with this dangerous Western Conference, not making a playing game at all. Yeah, I think what's crucial is the number of games that are left in the season and where the Phoenix Suns are at. Every game matters. So coming into Portland, yeah, I mean, whatever the reason is that the, the guys want to say, you know, they only had eight, uh, we just beat the Lakers, you know, riding high, none of that is acceptable. And and it's great to see Beal's accountability in terms of, hey, you know, this is, this is what we did. We took a step back, call it out, get in the lab, fix it, call it out on film, hold people accountable and be better next game. And that is what it's going to take 
to be ready to play at the playoff caliber level that you're going to need in the Western Conference because every single matchup is going to be tough. There's going to be no easy matchups, and and you have to be ready for that. And so there's no time to coast, uh, to navigate. Obviously, the, the team hasn't seen the big three together, you know, through a large portion of the first half of the season. And so now all that ground that could have been gained has to be done in the second half of the season, getting ready for playoffs, all while staying healthy and against great opponents. And so that that is what is it is going to take is the accountability, making sure everyone is holding each other accountable and not reacting in a negative way to that to ensure their sons are set up for success heading into the playoffs. Yeah. Last question about the Suns because we got under five minutes left is the Suns have had a lot of chatter about them, about the fact that they are lacking a true point guard. Devin Booker has been handling the facilitator duties all season, and they're basically putting Bradley Beal and Devin Booker in the same backcourt as a starter. They're both twos, but Devin can handle it, as he's proven, uh, as their assist leader. But do they need to shake the roster up by putting Bull out there in order to increase his value, as we've seen, as basically a smokescreen to audition him for a trade package come the trade deadline, which is less than a month from now? Well, if we do go grab a point guard, which beginning of the season I was all, all for Rondo for the control, but the biggest thing is the minutes. Where does his minutes? Is that just fourth quarter? Uh, I, I thought CP was a great person for that. It didn't work out with the years that he had here due to injury or what have you. But uh, but you know, it did take a trip to the finals with, with that. But where where does he where does he get minutes if you do trade and get a point guard? Because if you do, if he do have Bill and Booker out there, you, you're considered to be small to having a point guard, unless this point guard is, you know, six nine, six eight, and wearing number twenty three and golden. And I don't think that's going to happen. But um, you know, it's it's going to take away from the height. So now, even if you just ship bowl off, now you you take a seven footer away. Obviously, you have one in KD that might play the four spot, and then you have the uh, you have the five spot to be rotated uh, throughout you know, six players that could that could fill that position. Uh, so that's the difficult part about let's go find a point guard. Where does that point guard's minutes come and where does that point guard's minutes count, Patrick? Yeah, I, I think I agree with said in terms of if you're going to get an established guard that's out there, not only are you small, to me it's more the minutes. Like who whose minutes are suffering? Where is that that coming from how is that person going to buy in and fit and so as, as we talked about numerous times and said brought up you know Rajon Rondo or others that are out there that are not playing that obviously would prefer to be playing and could sparingly and appreciate those minutes and the opportunity and then provide relief because look the turnovers are continually an issue yeah some games it could look good but teams in a playoff and in a series they're going to know how to match up to force those turnovers that are then going to lead to easy buckets. And, and we know the sport of basketball, you have more opportunities to score, you put yourself in a great position to win. And if you're the opposition that already is not defensively sound as other teams in a playoff series, you know, that, that rings trouble. So it's definitely something that is a focus and needs to be addressed and game plan for, because it's not going to just improve overnight book, you know, point book, isn't just going to miraculously better be better, you know, and then when he's out and and then what does that look like with whoever's in and do we know what we're getting from J O? And so we know what we are, 
And so before the trade deadline, you know, th those are major pieces that you're looking to move potentially and not understanding what that value in return will be. And then you have, oh, okay, a, a couple of months to get that figured out before you're in the playoffs. You know, there, there's a lot of risk there with not as much reward. And so it's going to be very interesting to see down this stretch before the trade deadline, what moves, if any, the Suns make. I'm just worried about the wear and tear. The guys who have fallen out of the rotation, like Yuta Watanabe, Jordan Goodwin, whose assist numbers are down, and he doesn't really push the pace like Cameron Payne did the past few years on the team, as well as you know, some guys. I know Bates Diop is getting some minutes and now for height and the, you know the length that he brings. And Drew Eubanks has pretty much fallen out of the rotation. I know he had a couple of good games, uh, you know, just after the new year, uh, but I, I felt he's been just getting healthy again from his illness, but I just don't see him getting his way back into the rotation like I was rooting for him early in the season over Nurkic, but Nurkic has pretty much found his groove as that guy to provide spacing. But I want to thank y'all for coming on, of course, and D-Train, uh, it's an honor to have you. And so- Good to be with you guys, man. Thank you so much. And said I'm a fan, brother. <laughs> I'm a fan you, to you as well, man. Thank you for the music. I appreciate your contribution to the world. Oh, yeah. uh, thank you. You too, my brother. Yeah, and shout out to uh to Dallas Cowboys. I know you you know that was a hurtful win for you. I'll throw it in there. <laughs> it, yeah, man, it, it it literally took your hair out. I don't know, but I, yeah, I, I made a bet with Michael Strahan. He's I got to cut my dreads off if they if they don't get one playoff win, and they didn't get it. So. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.